Well, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be there first. We have a couple of passages to look at today. Before we begin, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us on our own to discern for ourselves or to rely just on human wisdom or tradition, but you have given us instruction. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit that we would understand your word today and that we would understand deeply the the signs and symbols that you have given us for our nourishment and our good and our worship. So would you deepen our faith today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is no such thing as something being considered just a symbol. No such thing. If I presented you a drawing of squiggles and shapes and lines... Your first instinct wouldn't be to marvel at the design. You would say, what does it mean? You have the sense that I'd be trying to communicate to you, that I'd want to represent something deeper than a mere design, or that I want to illustrate a belief or a concept. There's no such thing as just a symbol, because a symbol is only as good as the substance that it represents. We have to assign meaning to a symbol for it to have any real strength. Actually, what we are doing is we are assigning a symbol to something that is meaningful so that we can carry the weight of something in compact form and and move it and put it somewhere else. For example, if you needed a symbol to mean burnt coffee beans. (laughs) Or if you needed a symbol to to communicate really good football. (laughs) Or if you needed a symbol to say, deep financial ruin. (laughs) There's no such thing as just a symbol. It's only as meaningful as the substance it represents. A symbol also loses its meaning when it's taken out of its context. Certain ancient symbols have taken on different meanings over time, depending on where it's located or a different meaning that's applied to it. And this is also why if you're an American traveling overseas, you want to be mindful of what hand gestures you use. If, if you're trying to communicate that something is A-OK, it may not be that way for long if you're trying to communicate it. But a symbol doesn't have any substance in itself. I wear a wedding ring on my left hand, the fourth finger down. But if I take off that ring, I'm no less married than I was before. Similarly so, if I take my wedding ring and I put it on one of these single guys here up front, it doesn't make them married all of a sudden. And certainly not to my wife. (laughs) A symbol is only as meaningful as the substance, and removing it from its context will remove its meaning. So why are we talking about this? Well, today we're talking about two of the most important signs and symbols in our faith, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Everything that we do as humans to symbols, 
we do have done to these ordinances. We've taken them from their context. We've applied them wrongly. We've argued about the symbol and the mode itself and tried to make the symbol meaningful without the substance that it represents. And my fear is that many Christians are paralyzed by the arguments, divisions, controversies over these ordinances. So much so that when we take communion or we observe a baptism, that we're actually disconnected from what's going on. We're fearful of making too much of it or not enough of it. Or it maybe brings up pain from your family from when you left a certain tradition in favor of another one. We might feel ill-equipped to rehash the entire Reformation with our friends or our family, so, so maybe we just kind of shrink away from our practice of these things. And I'm sure many of you have heard from Roman Catholics that Protestants and evangelicals see these things as just symbols rather than sacraments. And I think the temptation is to join in and say, yeah, they're just symbols out of fear that we'd be claiming something is there that isn't there. But here's the deal. There's no such thing as just a symbol. A symbol is only as meaningful as the substance it represents. And a symbol loses its meaning when taken from its context. So today I want to renew our understanding of these practices. The context. Most importantly, the substance that's behind these symbols. Because there is such blessing for us as believers in these ordinances, and it sits right under our nose. So let's consider this together and recognize how, as we gather, we remember and enact the gospel through these practices. Now, if we're going to make sure that these practices remain in their context, we need to understand what that context is. Who participates? How? When? And as I've considered this, I think the broadest way that we have removed the symbol of the ordinances is by misunderstanding the individual and the corporate. Let's take a look at a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians. These are going to be up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Then 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, For we all partake of one bread. In the first verse, Paul emphasizes that the practice of baptism is tied to our unity in the body. It is not merely that we are baptized, but we are baptized into a body to be participants with one another. In particular, in that context, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free as one. The second verse emphasizes that the bread and the drink of communion are not individual ventures, but corporate participation, emphasizing community, emphasizing the one profession, the unity of the participants. And in the last 2,000 years, humans have increased more and more into emphasizing the individual. And this is particularly true since the Enlightenment, 
where Western thought has largely emphasized the rights, freedoms, and values of the individual. And it's clear how this has influenced the church. Because in recent years, much of the trends of church ministry is to react and respond to the felt needs of the individual rather than emphasizing the place of a Christian within the larger body. Now, while Christians may have overcorrected to emphasize the individual, we must also recognize the strengths of dignifying our individual faith. The whole idea that it is not merely a group of people that is saved, but you and I individually can have intimacy with the God of the universe. That the Holy Spirit inhabits not the walls of this church building, but each of us who trust in Christ. That the church is not just a sum of its parts, but that every person is uniquely and diversely gifted, and they have a glorious place to serve in God's kingdom. We have gained wonderful things by embracing our individuality. But I think the problem for us as a church, and particularly with the ordinances, is when we emphasize one over the other, either individual or corporate. Both realities are biblical. Both realities are important. The context of celebrating baptism in the Lord's Supper is individual and corporate. Just as separating a symbol from its context removes its meaning, so does separating the ordinances from their context. Here's what I mean. When we do baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are having an individual experience inside of a corporate experience. Both realities are at play. Both things are important. And we gain more by emphasizing the both rather than one over the other. And this is difficult to do, and, and it kind of seems like a paradox. In fact, Paul emphasizes this in Romans 12, 5, saying, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Individual members of one body. And this year we've been zeroing in on our value of gathering, and it's wrapped up in this paradox. We have to reject the notion that church is all about me and my experience and what I can get out of it. But we should not go so far to say that my experience is only valid based off of a corporate experience. Through the Spirit, we are able to live in the mysterious, paradoxical waters and say that we are having an individual experience inside of a corporate experience and that the power and the blessing are inside that tension that's there. So as we get into discussing baptism and the Lord's Supper, I want to read the section from our statement of faith that speaks to this. This will be on the screen as well. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, I don't expect all of you to spend your time reading church doctrinal statements, and this might just be nerdy of me, but I really like our statement of faith. This statement in particular is helpful because it's an articulation of what we believe as a denomination. And what I like in particular is how balanced this part is. These ordinances are not merely a rote spiritual ritual, 
but a visible, tangible experience of the gospel. Not a means of salvation, but also not devoid of power because it confirms and nourishes the whole church. So how do these practices do that? Well, we're going to start with baptism. So if if you're not already there, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 15. (coughs) See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Baptism is a symbol of the gospel. And as we said previously, a symbol is only as strong as its substance. And this passage clearly demonstrates that substance. When we take a professing believer and place them under the water, we are demonstrating the unity of this person with Christ in his death. And when the person is raised from the water, it shows their union with Christ in his resurrection. The believer is given the tangible sign to themselves and to others that they are a new creation because they have died with Christ and they have raised with Christ. That sign or symbol is given to the believer and they have this physical experience that they hold on to as a reminder of the transformation that has happened. Primarily, it is a declaration that Christ has died and risen again and that I am in Christ. To the unbeliever who looks upon this practice, it probably looks like somebody getting a weird clothed bath in public. The person doesn't look any different when they rise except maybe have a smile on their face. They're not suddenly cured of all diseases or endowed with superhuman strength. They might not even be that much cleaner than when they went in. The symbol is only powerful if you know the substance. This person was dead in their trespasses and sins, and God made him alive, forgiving his sins, killing them to the cross, and took him so far from condemnation that demonic forces can't even make any accusations against them. Christ gave us this sign, this symbol of our redemption, so that we may remember forever that we are one with him. Unfortunately, We have robbed baptism of its power. It's so appropriate, the context in Colossians, where Paul addresses baptism, because he's talking about being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition. And boy, have our human traditions done a number on baptism. 
taking it from its context, emphasizing the symbol itself over the substance. I became a believer at the beginning of high school, and I remember not being sure about getting baptized. There seemed to be so much controversy about when you should do it, how you should do it, and what it meant. And I was hesitant to be taking sides in some kind of debate. And as a young believer, I went to many different Bible studies that were held at my school. And I don't even know the background of this one teacher, but this has always stuck out to me. We got on the topic of baptism, and I asked him why or if I should be baptized. His response to me was, I think there's certain sins that you can't overcome unless you are baptized. Thankfully, I knew enough not to believe that. But it revealed that people took baptism to a place that put too much weight on the sign, and so that it was confusing of what you were actually supposed to get out of it. Maybe you've had other experiences. Maybe you were taught that baptism something you do as many times as you've had any doubt or any backsliding or uh, any recommitment of your faith. But continual baptism takes away from the substance being something that is immovably past tense about you. It might cause you to doubt in the power of Christ's death and resurrection if it's something you have to re-up from time to time. And you may have come from a tradition that taught either explicitly or implicitly, that baptism saves you. That you're not regenerated until you've been baptized. Or that maybe it was illegitimate because it was a sprinkling and not a dunk. And we make such a mockery of it that there's probably a debate over fresh water, spring water, or salt water. We are so prone to be held captive by human tradition when it comes to this. Just the fact that there is such controversy and church splits over baptism, it just robs it of its power. But Christ gave us this symbol. He gave us an individual experience inside of a corporate experience. To the individual, it is a tangible express experience of the senses, going under the water in death, rising to new life and celebration. But it's not done alone. In the scripture, the pattern is public proclamation, the presence of witnesses. Oftentimes there were crowds, otherwise it was entire households. As fellow believers, we witness a brother or sister joining our family in public declaration. Our experience is saying, I am one with this person. One faith, one baptism. They are my brother, they are my sister. Our, our hearts say this because we're reminded of our own baptism. Another person like me, dead in trespasses and sins, finding new life in Christ. Every time we celebrate this, the congregation are the privileged ones. Because we get to say again, the gospel is real. God transforms. God saves. It was true for me, and it's still true today. God is at work. We are so blessed by the corporate expression of baptism. In this, we are affirming what our statement, our statement declares, that this practice confirms us and nourishes us as believers. And I'm so thankful that in the free church, we choose to stay rather broad 
and we choose not to divide over the method of these practices. Now, I will state where I and the other pastors land on a few things. Much of this is how we try to use wisdom and discernment and strive not to go above what Scripture has indicated for us. So this is not to bind your conscience because as a denomination, we choose to exercise freedom. These are all just precursors before you write your emails this week, so <laughs> keep that in mind. Uh, when we talk about the mode of baptism, at Westchester, we do baptism by immersion. So every person gets submerged into the water. And rather than this being a purely biblical or historical debate, I see this more as a practical consideration of what makes the most of the substance it represents. Other traditions, they'll choose to emphasize different things with the sprinkling or with the pouring. But I think immersion does the most to emphasize the death and the resurrection symbolized in baptism. At Westchester, we baptize professing believers. By nature of this, what we're saying is that we don't practice paedo-baptism, which is baptizing infants. And there is a lot longer conversation we could have about this, but I, I want to say two points in brief. First of all, the pattern we see in Scripture every time is people repent and believe, and then they are baptized. The second is exactly what I'm trying to emphasize with the individual and corporate experience. I think the pattern of repentance and faith shows us that the symbol is given for the individual to experience and not merely a corporate expression passing the gospel from parent to child. The best way for a believer to have the tangible experience of baptism and to remember their own baptism is to be able to make that profession for themselves. I do want to comment too, since we had the pleasure of dedicating my son this morning, that that is not a baptism. It's not a dry baptism. It's not some kind of consolation prize that we're keeping up with the infant baptist by doing. It's a different tradition altogether where we get to celebrate life that God has brought into the church and we're committing to one another uh, our responsibility to point Jack to the Lord, to teach him the gospel in hopes that eventually he will make a profession of faith. And I see it as a great tradition that's edifying for the church but it's not an ordinance given by Jesus. And then there's the issue of rebaptism. As I stated before, I think a strength of baptism is professing what is already true about you in Christ. If you made the profession as a believer, I do not think that you need to be rebaptized. An exception to this would be if you were baptized as an infant and you came to faith later. But I personally don't see this as an across-the-board rule that every baptized infant should be rebaptized. But if you do not view that baptism as consistent with your conversion, whether because of tradition or conviction, then I think you should have a baptism as a professing believer. But if this is a question for you, I think the best thing would be come talk to me about it. Come talk to one of the other pastors about it. Let's, let's discern and, and have wise counsel about this together. But I would love for any of you, if you have not been baptized, have this be the day that you make the commitment to come and be baptized. I want you to have that experience we're talking about, the blessing of baptism for you in your own life. In the free church, we have freedom to take some differing perspectives on these practices, but we rally around the truth. The practice of baptism does not save 
But the practice is a powerful symbol because of what it signifies. That we, though dead in sin, were made alive by being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And if ever in doubt of our salvation, we may look to that experience. And whenever we get the privilege of witnessing baptism, we may rejoice and be nourished by the power of the gospel going forth to yet another brother or sister. In equipping the church with symbolic expression of the gospel, Jesus gave us not one, but two symbols. Baptism being a one-time sign for a professing believer and an infrequent expression for the congregation. So he also gave us communion, the Lord's Supper, as the regular expression, the regular reminder practice of the gospel. So to talk about this, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to discuss this further. I'm going to read chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And boy, do I wish he gave us those other instructions. It's always so interesting to me in reading that passage that we get the most instruction on the Lord's Supper from this, um, from this passage. And it's the one where Paul is rebuking the church for practicing it improperly. But since that's the case, it does tell us something interesting by giving this definition from the negative point of view. 
I think we could take this to mean that Paul was not setting out to give very specific rules about how this was to be practiced. Rather, he saw it more important to draw the lines that they should not cross. Because of this, I think it points us to having a lot of freedom in our practice of communion. Once again, a symbol is meaningless if taken from its context. The rebuke that Paul is giving to the church at Corinth is that they had divorced the symbol and the practice from its meaning and it rendered it useless. If we look again at verse 20, it says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It's not the Lord's Supper that they eat. So what are they eating then? What are they doing? The problem is they treated the ordinance as though it were just any other meal. Or at worst, possibly even a pagan meal. Even more importantly in Paul's mind is that they were not mindful of the context of this meal. This is not merely a practice for the individual. If you want to feast on bread and get drunk on wine, you have a house for that. If you want your own individual, I'm in this for myself kind of experience, go to your own house. This practice is now meaningless to you. They treated the Lord's Supper as an ordinary meal. They treated the body of Christ like it was some kind of club. I say club because this practice was creating an in-crowd and an out-crowd, the haves and the have-nots. If it's only for the rich, then the gospel has no power. Without the body of Christ gathering together, this practice is devoid of meaning. Paul is up in arms at their thoughtless, reckless, cavalier practice of this ordinance. So how are we to understand this practice? Paul says he is giving to them what he received, a simple outline, no more, no less. There are two elements, the bread and the cup. He takes them back to the night that Jesus gave this to the disciples for the first time. With the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Jesus was like the bread, ripped apart, torn apart for you. Likewise, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is giving them a very powerful sign and seal of the gospel His speaking of the new covenant is important because all of the covenants that have been made with God's people and have been building on one another since Adam, they're finding their fulfillment in Christ. And many of those covenant ceremonies center around a meal. We'll have to leave the bulk of the conversation about covenant, about the Passover connections, and a lot of other really cool stuff we'll have to leave for another day. Because Paul is focusing us in to see this bread, this cup, Christ's body, Christ's blood for you, for remembrance. Once again, we take this practice out of its context in many ways. Some of it's understandable. Because we don't want to take it in the wrong way. We don't want to be guilty of the same sins as the Corinthians. 
But on the flip, flip side of that, have we become so fearful of doing it wrongly that it fails to be a place of joy, remembrance, nourishment? Some of you may resonate with these ideas. It's not supposed to taste good. It's not supposed to be enjoyable. You need to recount all your sins. You need to feel bad about yourself in order to come and receive communion. Theologian Tom Schreiner says, churches have been so busy talking about who should be excluded from the Lord's table that we have forgotten to insist that all believers should be in regular attendance at the table. Elsewhere, he says that the debate about the real presence of Christ in communion It goes so far that you would be convinced the only place where Jesus would never be present is at communion. This is not to be some joyless, negative, guilt-ridden ritual. When we take communion together, we proclaim Christ's death, which is to proclaim our life in him. We proclaim that Christ is the one who invites us to receive him, not some work, not feeling bad enough about ourselves, We proclaim that the table is not for me alone, but for the church. We must see one another take this meal. And in this, we proclaim the gospel to each other, his body broken for you and you and you. We together are his covenant people. We together renew this covenant. And as often as we do, we do it in remembrance of him. I really like how Paul says, as often as you do this, as though he foresaw a day when people would be debating about the frequency of it. But it tells us that the Lord's Supper is something that you cannot do too much. It will not lose its power with over-practice. Now, we could get into the arguments about the frequency of it. We could talk about how a cracker and a half shot of grape juice is hardly a meal. Or... We could, with eagerness and joy, anticipate the second Sunday of the month where we regularly take this. We could remember that it is the spiritual nourishment that I come seeking, not to fill my stomach. I hope that even today, as we partake of communion, that you will be able to set aside all these other ideas and all these other practices and have a renewed and refreshed understanding of this, that Christ has prepared a meal for you. Firstly, to come and be a participant in him, his body and his blood, to receive the salvation that he worked in his own flesh, in his own body. And secondly, this is continually an invitation to you. Not one that we should be all coy and Midwestern about, like, oh, are you sure? I don't don't want to impose on your meal. This invitation is not to remind you of your unworthiness, it is to tell you that Christ counts you worthy. This is a table of grace, of unmerited favor poured out on you, a continual welcome to be one with Christ, seated at a table with your friend. But what about all your sins? What about the sins you've committed this week or even this morning? I have good news for you. The prerequisite for coming to the table is that you have failed, is that you have sinned, is that you have broken the covenant. And the invitation doesn't get rescinded. Praise the Lord. (laughs) 
Because this is what we declare in the Lord's Supper. Christ did what you couldn't do. His body broken. His blood spilled. He will keep the covenant when you cannot. We we come to the table with the weight of what Christ has done, but it should be in the form of a weightless gratitude, not a guilty burden. He has counted you worthy. Come and receive. And we should comment briefly on what Paul means by taking it in an unworthy manner. This is a warning to those who misunderstood and misused the Lord's Supper. Treating it as a meal that they were entitled to. Treating it as a meal of status. Possibly thinking it was in line with how they do a pagan ritual. They failed the individual and corporate aspects of the sign. They did not discern for themselves the gravity of the symbol. Treating it as mere bread and wine and not considering what it meant for Christ to die. They also didn't discern the others around them as those coming forth in one body, taking of the same meal in unity. And for this reason, they drink condemnation on themselves, and even curse, as Paul has said. Because one of the greatest signs for the believer is right there under their nose, and they would rather abuse it and think of themselves rather than trust in the gospel. This is why before we partake, we commonly remind you that this for those who trust in Christ for salvation. If you are not a believer, partaking of this is not a neutral thing. It is condemnation on yourself. It does you no favors to try to save face for your friends and your family that you're here with if you do not believe this. But for you, believers in Christ, this table is for you. Christ welcomes you Receive his grace and his mercy anew today. And in just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together, as is most appropriate from this message. If those who are serving could go ahead and come forward. We're going to practice this a bit differently than normal today, and I'm going to instruct you, but I want to close with these words. There is no such thing as just a symbol. A symbol is as powerful as the substance that it represents. As you come forward today, the symbol that you hold is a reminder that though your sins deserved a broken body and spilled blood, Christ did that on your behalf. It may be a simple snack, but it is a visible, tangible symbol that can revive your soul. He has paid the entire cost for this meal, and he invites you to come and eat Come and drink. And all he asks is that we do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Father, may we be reminded of the substance of what is right here in front of us today. May we take this anew, recognizing that though we are so unworthy, you have counted us worthy. Though we have sinned, you still call us friend. You still invite us forward to receive your grace. May we come forward with the boldness of knowing that we are one with you, knowing that our trust is in you, that you have paid all the cost. And may this be a fresh reminder for us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.